Welcome listeners to the macro overview for the March 2023 quarter. Andrew Clifford is once again here with us today to talk all things macro and markets. Welcome Andrew. Good to be here Dean. Now the biggest news for the quarter has been all about the banks and while many people have heard of Credit Suisse, Silicon Valley Bank in the US was probably not a household name until quite recently. How are you thinking about the stability of the financial system and the likely economic impacts? Yeah, it's a good question. Where I'd like to start, though, is to just sort of go back and revisit what we've been saying about the investment environment we're in. We've now had interest rates going up for a year. We've had the Fed unwinding their quant easing or quantitative tightening. And, you know, what we've been saying is that this is just a completely different investment environment to the one that we've been in for the last decade, which was the opposite of that. And when you have tight monetary policy, as we've had, this is when financial accidents do occur. And uh, Silicon Valley Bank, Credit Suisse are not the first of those. So we have to remember last year there was a, a big scare around the UK pension funds, which was averted. We've had the collapse of the crypto exchanges and so forth. So ultimately, when money is tight, whether that's through higher interest rates or less availability of credit, that's when things are exposed. So that's what we've had here, a, a weakness in Silicon Valley Bank and the way US banking system actually operates. So I think the important thing to take out of this is people are worried about whether there's going to be another bank or what's the next bank, how this flows through. And indeed, you know, one can't confidently say that we're beyond the problems in the US. We possibly are. But in the US, they're experienced at handling bank failures. They have lots of small ones all the time. And the formula they've rolled out here for Silicon Valley Bank is a pretty standard approach. But even if we do move beyond this now, what this really does is make the situation of tight money even worse. Because the situation is this. These regional banks in the US have made lots of investments in 30-year fixed interest securities. They've lost money on those. But really more the way to look at it is they've invested their money for the next 30 years at 1.5%, 2%, and now their cost of money, which they pay on much shorter time frames, has gone up substantially and is a lot higher than that. So they're just losing money on an ongoing basis. We can look at it different ways, but when banks are in this situation, whether they survive it or not, and, and you know, I think largely they'll survive it, they will be even more restrictive in their lending than they have been. And we're already seeing that in the loan surveys from these, these regional banks in the US. And the regional banks are a really important part of business lending. They are half of commercial real estate loans. They're a large part of small business lending. So the, the outcome of Silicon Valley Bank is that this really reinforces this very difficult environment for the economy and for markets. And so, as you said, you know, we, we have started seeing those accidents appear from the, the rate rises and the high levels of rates. Do you think central banks will reverse course and start cutting rates from here? Yeah, the, the central banks, you know, and I think we should really, this is what we're talking about, predominantly a US phenomenon. We can talk about Credit Suisse in a moment, but they're in a really difficult position here because while there are plenty of signs that inflation is peaking and that there are sort of signs that the economy is on the cusp of slowing down. It hasn't actually done that yet. The labour market is still strong. Wages are still growing quickly. 
We've even had a market like used cars, which was a, a crazy market through COVID where used cars became incredibly expensive, prices rolled over. They're now going up again. So I think that the difficulty here is if the, if the Fed cuts rates in response to the banking crisis but inflation doesn't settle down, you perhaps get all sorts of unexpected consequences. Like one of them could be that at the 30-year end of the curve or the 10-year bonds, actually the yields go up rather than down. So there's, there's lots of possibilities here. But what I would say ultimately is that, again, when we're thinking about the investment environment, even if rates do peak out here and start to get cut, that difficulty in obtaining credit, that tightness of money, is going to be with us for some time. And just simply the rate increases we've seen, there is a lagged response to that in the economy. It takes a year to 18 months. So we're only a year really now from the first rate hike. We've got all those, you know, what's happened over the course of 2022 yet to flow through into the economy. So Yes, it may be, but I'm not sure that will particularly bring the economy or investors any immediate joy. Yeah, it's interesting. Different transmission mechanisms from different countries will be interesting to watch. And as you say, that lag effect playing out. Specifically, if we move to Europe, Credit Suisse aside, perhaps the financial system appears more resilient than, than what we see in the, in the US and perhaps here in Australia as well. But there is still a war going on and the energy crisis, while it wasn't as much of a problem as many feared, it certainly hasn't been resolved. So how are you thinking about Europe? Yeah, so I think we should think about the banking systems in Europe and elsewhere and how they differ from the US because it's, it's very clear that in the, U- the US financial system is dominated by this fixed 30-year mortgage. We just don't have that really. There are a, s- a small number of places that have it, but by and large, everyone is on variable rate mortgages, even if they're fixed for two or three years. So the banking systems just elsewhere, and certainly in the case of Europe, don't take on that interest rate risk. The transmission mechanism there will be different because it will be homeowners with a mortgage who are going to be the ones who are hurt rather than, in the US case, the banks for having taken on that risk. So the risk now is with households and businesses that have borrowed money. So it'll be a different transmission mechanism and potentially the thing you worry about is if there was a a very significant downturn where the banks will hurt elsewhere in the world on credit costs as borrowers start to struggle to to pay off their their loans but I think that the remarkable thing about Europe is that we've had a war in Europe now going on for over a year we've had the huge increase in energy prices at the start of the year and yet that economy has remained in light of that incredibly robust no major pickup in unemployment. Economic growth is still positive, and that's in spite of the fact that many industries that rely on gas, some have had to close down, and yet economic activity is picked up elsewhere. So the place has been really robust. And I think where we are with energy is that we had a bit of luck, a warm winter. China's economy was very slow. That meant there was places we could source, get alternative sources of gas and the like. Europe's been... The economy has responded to those higher prices by cutting consumption. At the moment, gas storage is filling up very quickly. So we're sort of partway through being resolved, but you're sort of in the hands of the weather a bit as well. But I'd, I'd just reflect on the fact that despite what we went through with energy prices early in 2022, the economy still managed to um, perform remarkably well.
Mm, indeed. And then, I guess, moving on to China, I mean, there was a period there where it was negative front page news nearly every day, if we think back to parts of 2022. But with the economy reopening, as, as all economies have uh, after COVID lockdowns, and with the market recovering as well, pretty remarkably at the back end of last year, China's been almost out of the spotlight in the, in the first quarter of this year. So how are you seeing the, sort of the Chinese macro and market at the moment? Yeah, so I think, you know, there were a whole lot of negatives that lined up against China in recent years. First of all, you had a lot of economic reforms. I'll, you know, some more people talk about the, the crackdown on the technology sector. It's really a, was a regulatory reform of that sector, uh, but caused a lot of uncertainty in the business community. You had policy mistakes in trying to control property prices that crashed the property market. You had the COVID lockdowns, and of course, You've had the US applying sanctions and tariffs on the country. So it's been a very difficult environment. And from that, you know, we really only have one way to go. So the easiest one is we've come out of the lockdowns. You can see it in the data on people's mobility. It's returned to normal levels. We haven't quite got overseas travel back. There are apparently shortages in approving visas and the like. But all of that stuff that we've seen elsewhere after COVID is starting to happen. We've put financing into the property sector to ensure developments get completed. And in that area, what we have seen is in the bigger cities, a good rebound in property sales. Not not back to the levels we came from, but a very substantial bounce from the bottom and even a slight uptick in property prices. So that bodes well for the economy. Some really shorter-term observations about consumer spending is that it's not coming back quite with the ferocity that we saw in other places. So it would seem there's still a some degree of caution amongst consumers at the moment. But, you know, I think that is just simply a question of time. And then I guess the last thing is we've seen the government have signalled very clearly that in the regulatory reform around e-commerce and whatever they've very clearly signalled that that work is done now. So I think there's room here for confidence to start to build. And just recently, and probably what's sort of a bit symbolic, but Jack Ma has returned to China, and symbolically I think that's a you know, very positive thing for the business community that, that he's back. And we've had this announcement about Alibaba splitting up their, their uh, business into six different units. So lots of improving sort of underlying economic fundamentals, but it still feels like the sentiment towards investing in China is probably still not rebounded in the same way. Would that be fair? I, I think that's right. I mean, I think still it's, it's very clear that people are still very cautious. We don't go from calling this, many commentators calling this market uninvestable to a fully blown bull market. So undoubtedly there's a lot of caution there. And I think the pattern of coming out of any bear market is the things that drove share prices down and caused concern, ultimately it takes a period of time for those concerns to be peeled away. And, you know, the pattern I would expect there is as we go through the year and we see companies reporting better sales and profits, that little bit by little bit people come back to the market. And ultimately the thing that will really bring people back is if China does have a good year this year, I've no doubt that those who are calling it uninvestable will by and large be back investing in that market. Interesting. And so as there always is, there are a lot of different factors at play, whether it be economic, uh, geopolitical concerns that will, that will continue. 
I guess if you could try and bring it together for us in terms of your view on, on major markets looking out from here. So I think what's really been interesting in recent last couple of quarters has been the relatively poor performance of the US market. And so clearly we have a lot of European markets that are not far from their all-time highs. China's clearly had a very good bounce off the bottom. The, the question in the US that is debated on the front pages is, is the bear market finished? We've had a good bounce from the lows of 2022, or is there more to go? And I would observe that it's likely it has more to go. And it's simply this, that with the interest rate rises we've had in this cycle, it's a bigger increase in interest rates than we've seen in the last 40-odd years, and it's the fastest increase in interest rates we've ever seen by a very long way. So the reason I would be worried about the general level of the US market is that interest rates have a very clear relationship to corporate earnings, and that is when we have rates up like this, corporate earnings will be very weak, and invariably that leads to a weak US stock market. Whereas I think China has a, is in a completely different cycle and Europe is, again, in its own cycle. Having said that, I think that for investors to overly focus on those levels of markets at the moment really misses the point, and that is that there's huge divergences within countries, within sectors. There are companies or industries that have been sold down heavily already, and there are opportunities there. And so while I do think there's more to go in this bear market, I really see 2023 as, as the year of opportunity for investors. That's interesting. So, so where are you seeing these opportunities, Andrew? So as where we focus our, our search for opportunities is really in two key areas. One is companies, industries, countries that are out of favour. Our cognitive biases tend to lead us to be too focused on recent events. That's one set of opportunities. The other is where there's a lot of change going on, whether it's regulatory, technological, uh, the competitive environment. And so there are some really big changes in the world going on and at least one area that's deeply out of favour. So most notably, and as everyone knows, the economy, the global economy has to go through a huge investment cycle to decarbonise. And that is throwing up, I think, a huge array of opportunities, areas of investment that are going to occur. But what I would say is that the opportunity set here is much broader than people think about. People think about electric cars, they think about wind turbines, solar panels, wind farms and the like. But really, there's a huge number of companies that will benefit, companies that make semiconductors that you need for an electric vehicle or a solar panel, for example. There will be opportunities in commodities in a whole range of areas. And again, people think about, obviously, lithium and copper a lot, but we would put it that something like pulp, which you make paper from, but, you know, we're going to need this to replace plastics. And there's some really interesting sort of activities that come out of making pulp that present opportunities from the, de- for the, de- from the decarbonisation. There's this huge move now since COVID and the, the, the concerns about reliance on China as well for companies either to reshore their production or diversify their production bases. So that gives rise to opportunities in a whole lot of different ways, whether it's if we're going to put those factories in developed markets, we need high levels of automation, 
So companies that provide that sort of equipment, if we're going to find alternative locations for production, countries like Thailand and Vietnam stand to, you know, we're, we're already seeing uh, a huge move of production into, into places like Thailand and Vietnam. So there's a story there as well. Then there is also China, which is we've already talked at length about, but is deeply unloved still, but is also fits into this idea of change because when we look at China, it is a leader in so many areas around leading-edge technology. So the whole decarbonisation effort will heavily rely on China. And finally, the shift in interest rates we're talking about, there are going to be long-term impacts on particular types of businesses or companies that go beyond just the, the sort of first order effect. So we think banking, where banks have deposit franchises, for example, will do much better with higher interest rates because previously they were getting no benefit for their deposit franchises. Insurance companies getting better returns on their floats. Or alternatively, in areas where there was a lot of competition from startups, you're going to see with money having been withdrawn from a lot of you know, startups and they're having to find their way to profitability. People who are being hurt by those, for example, again, in the banking area, lots of neo-banks that are falling by the wayside, or even in e-commerce itself, you know, everyone is basically now got to get themselves to break even. They're not going to get more money for many ventures. Many will fail to do that, and those who are left standing will potentially have, have won the, the land grab and develop very valuable businesses. So... I think just investors have to be thinking about opportunity here and not just getting miserable about, you know, that the end of the world is coming. Interesting. I think that's a really good point to finish this discussion. So, Andrew, thank you again for your thoughts today and all the best for the quarter ahead until we speak again. Thank you.